Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. And even though this month is March and Women's History Month, we are actually doing the opposite. We have a man on. And, We're uh, kicking I, off with a man. I mean, we have we have plenty of men on, right? But I do feel yeah. like they don't get fair representation. That there are we do have a lot of women who come on, and there is this perspective that doesn't get a lot of focus in the fertility world. So yeah. it's really good to get to discuss that um, in honor of a bit of. A, a episode of focusing on men. Jen, I'm going to give you a quiz. Are you ready? No, but I'll do it anyway. Okay. I believe in you. This is just some basic facts about semen, sperm, etc. Excellent. <clears throat> Here you go. On average, how much time passes between sperm creation and that sperm being ejaculated? Oh, wow. I feel like I know it's either something like 40 days or 70 days. I can't remember mm. something like that. No, seventy-two uh, hours. I don't know. So it's three months is the average. Three months, okay. Yeah. Which I think is good to know because I think people think like, oh, I'm eating something now, or like this week, you know, this right. is affecting it. But really, it was like months ago. Right. Okay. Um. Next one. Name a food considered helpful for increasing sperm quantity and quality. And I have a I have a list, so we'll see if you hit on one on the list. Oh, I mean, isn't like oysters supposed to be like the stereotypical one? Mm-hmm. Do you know any more? Oh no, I only know the stereotypes. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oysters, bananas, walnuts, asparagus, garlic, oh. lean beef, and chocolate are on my list. Oh, okay. All We're right. gonna do one more. Ready? Okay. Okay. A percentage of sperm is considered abnormal with two heads, two tails, or disproportionate parts. What percentage are considered abnormal? Abnormal. You mean typically what is? Yeah. Typically, what what percentage is considered abnormal? Uh, Let's go on a typical, how about 1%? 90%. Whoa! Yeah. It's really high. I was way off. I guess there's only like a couple that are like totally normal. I mean, that oh. kind of like the usual population of people. No, okay, just kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, but presenting our great guest to focus on the male perspective of infertility. Welcome, John Waldman, author of Swimming Aimlessly, One Man's Journey Through Infertility and What We Can All Learn From It. We are excited to learn from you today and about your journey. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Ah, absolutely. This is an awesome new perspective. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, the man's perspective. I know. <laughs> it's so rare that we speak to them. Um, because as you know, in your book, right, you, it's just men deal with infertility differently, right? And they're less vocal and less out there. Um, absolutely. John, do you want to start kind of with where you were when all of this started for you in your life? Yeah, it was... A couple years into our marriage, we uh, we were married in 2007 and we waited a little bit just because my wife was in school and I was still very young in my career to start having kids. And I sort of joked at the time that it was part of the quote unquote five year plan. I didn't know at the time that it was going to be much more than five years before we could uh, start having children. <laughs> so 
uh, after a couple months of trying to conceive naturally, um, we found that it was just not working, but we just kept going at it because there's really nothing you can do, at least in Canada, until you've been unsuccessful for a year conceiving. Uh, we ended up around, I think, month eight or month nine uh, conceiving. However, about eight or nine weeks into the pregnancy, uh, we lost the baby. So, yeah, at that point, um, we really didn't know where to turn. And because we had already been trying for so long, uh, we were able to get into a fertility specialist a little bit quicker uh, here in Winnipeg. And we ended up trying a couple basic things. You know, we tried drugs. We tried um, IUI. We tried a couple of those simpler procedures. Yeah, I, I have to ask because we ask women this all the time. How yeah. was Clomid for you or Clomid <laughs> or whatever it's variants of? So how was it from your perspective? Honestly, from my perspective, I am thankful that I didn't have to take any of the, of the drugs. I was found to have a low motility in my sperm. Uh, and it was, I didn't, it wasn't anything that was like at zero or there was uh, majorly low complications. But what they did uh, say was that, you know, there's a couple of basic things you could do. Uh, you can lose weight. You can get a little bit healthier, try a couple of different foods. Um, my wife started with an acupuncturist and I'm not one to take as many needles as I can. So I decided not to do that, but I still, still spoke with her uh, practitioner who was into tr- traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, so she recommended goji berries to me, which I started taking, uh, putting on salads and things like that. Um, she recommended maca root, which I unfortunately took um, I, and I, I was going to say, you got to talk a little bit more about that because you, you talked in depth about that in the book. And actually, I, 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 I'm going to, we're going to spoil it from here. You, you got to talk about your experience with that because that sounded yeah. horrible. <laughs> it was abysmal. I, I went to our local uh, natural food store and I saw that there were two options, either pills or powder. The powder was about 10 to $15 cheaper. So I figured, of course, why not? I'm, I'm a guy right. and we're. Doing that. So, so I asked the, I asked one of the attendants about it and she said, yeah, I take a spoonful of this every morning. So I thought, okay, you know, it can't be that bad. I took my first, uh, Mac root sampling, uh, by spoon. And what I found is that it congeals at the oh. slightest touch of any liquid, including saliva. So all of a sudden oh. I had this lumpy, substance in my mouth there's no other way to describe it and <laughs> and you can't spit it out you can't put more water in it because it just absorbs it right yeah <laughs> I, I, so, you go back to the clerk and you're like liar there's no way you're taking this every morning it's too gross if i could have i would have but I, honestly the last thing that i wanted to do was to go back into that store because i had a feeling that they were going to recommend all sorts of different things uh, that could potentially even be worse so right, i right. i got it or they were exactly <laughs> yeah, sucker. Um, so what I ended up, when I, I honestly ended up doing is I tried it on to just put it on into a couple of foods. You know, I mixed it into my cereal. I tried it on a lasagna one night, and it it just wasn't working for me. So I just kept with the with the goji berries and a couple of the other um, berries and such that were recommended. I laid off the uh, the fat boys here. Uh, basically, <laughs> you know, like they take a take what a, take a teen burger and add a couple extra layers of grease and good stuff on it. Um, and that's what a fat boy is, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a Winnipeg term. So, uh, so my apologies for that, but essentially, essentially, um, 
we, uh, I just started eating healthier, started exercising more and I, my, my motility was able to improve. Uh, but ultimately the main root of our, of our issue was uh, female factor. And so we did, so it was my wife that experienced Clomid and unfortunately did not react well to it. Uh, we tried Letrozole, <laughs> which was a little bit better, but it still wasn't getting us to where we mm -hmm. wanted to go. Right. I will say on the male factor side, the testing, I was really yeah. interested to hear some of the statistics you talk about. I had never heard this. That, and you can correct me on the exact kind of numbers and time frame, but somehow in like the last yeah. 40, 50 years, the average men's sperm count has gone down by like 40 million or like in half or something crazy. Please correct me. What, what was the actual number? Um, I know like, astounding. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember honestly offhand, so, uh, so we can just clip that there. But um, what I'll say is that, yeah, it's, it has gone down significantly um, since the original time that it was measured, you know, however many decades ago. And there's, there's always a lot of discussion about why that is, whether it's environmental factors, whether it's things that we could control more, like keeping phones in our front pockets and some of those uh, discussion points. But the ultimate answer is that it doesn't matter what is causing it. The, what matters is that it is going down. And it's not something that can be easily solved, especially when you look at the science behind it, that there hasn't been a lot of exploration into male factor infertility as a whole. I spoke with so many researchers and, and, did, and looked at so many articles and there really wasn't anything conclusive other than one doctor in one article who remarked that if men don't, men don't wanna be pricked down, down there at the best of times, so why examine there? Which is ridiculous uh, because right. I've been in, I've been, I'm in a few different Facebook groups uh, for men dealing with infertility and post-infertility and Anybody that I've spoken to will t tell you that they will do whatever it takes to find out what the source is of their, of their male factor infertility. And there's finally becoming a movement to get better with male factor exploration, but it's taken so long that we're still light years behind where we are in overall infertility research. Uh, you look at that IVF is now around 40 years old. You look at the female exploration, which has been around for decades now, but that one half of the equation and literally one half, when you consider that all that of the infertility factors, either fully male or blended is adds up to 50% of all infertility cases. So it's astounding that it's taken this long to, for someone to sit up and say, wait a minute, maybe we should be looking at male infertility a little bit closer. So obviously, I mean, not obviously, but you, you got to the point where you discovered it was female factor, which is not necessarily the point of your journey and your, your story. It's yeah. more talking about how you experienced infertility as a male, which is such an underrepresented perspective in this. Like, talk about how you saw it. I mean, I hate to be like high level overview, but, <laughs> but, but it, I mean, it is something that so many people just don't even know how to, to speak to how, mm -hmm. how did, where did you start, you know, in, in trying to find your level of support and supporting your wife through this as well? Well, that, and that's one of the keys is that I was trying to support my wife while trying to deal with my own issues because the, the stereotype is that the man is supposed to be the rock. He's supposed to be the foundation. 
be able to take everything in, absorb it, rub the dirt off and get back in the game. But really men struggle immensely. And that's what I found was that I was having trouble with my, the mental health aspect. Um, I was already predisposed to mental health conditions as I had um, had issues that hadn't gone, uh, weren't taken care of for, for lack of a better term in high school and the university and afterward. But those conditions put me forward a bit in that I had to, that there were issues that I was facing and it took a lot, unfortunately, for me to fast up and say, okay, I need to do something about this. Um, but what I ended up doing is I talked to counselors. I talked to, um, I tried talking to friends, which wasn't the easiest thing to do. Um, I started on um, an antidepressant. I you know, did all these different things to try to get myself at least not fully repaired because obviously mental health isn't something that you can, you know, put in a cast and all, and then four weeks later take off and you'll be better, but at least get something where I'm on a better path and a better protocol towards getting into a, into the best feeling that I can be, especially as you're going through a tumultuous time of tests and travel and so many options and what way do you want to go? Um, so really it took a lot to do it. And I don't mind admitting I, there were nights that I broke down crying. There were nights that I just felt miserable, but ultimately I did what I needed to do um, because I wanted to keep my family moving forward. And I, I had thankfully have a very supportive wife who was, who was with me through it all. And the more that I talked about it with her, what I talked about it with my family, with my friends, the conversations got easier at least for me, I don't know how it was for my friends, but, um, but it ultimately what ended up happening was that it just became more comfortable to the point where we were already in a support group for infertility in general through the, what was then the infertility awareness association of Canada, uh, now fertility matters, Canada. And I just started to talk. Um, guys weren't talking a lot. If they were saying anything in the meetings, um, it was usually, yep. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, and I just felt like I just needed to get it off my chest. And when I did, I just felt I felt better about it myself. And I just and I felt like there was opportunity there to start to help others feel better. Yeah, to get the conversation out there. And you're not an outlier, right? You're an outlier maybe in like actually getting out there and talking about it more. But in terms of having these feelings, having mental health effects from infertility. I know you, there was another statistic from your book that I was amazed by, which was that 42% of those going for, through infertility have thoughts of suicide. Mm -hmm. I was really shocked by that number. I was a little bit surprised, but at the same time, I wasn't. Because when you look at something that you're supposed to be able to do naturally, that's if you want to be religious, that it's the word in the Bible. If you want to, if you want to have that, just go by natural instinct. The natural instinct is to reproduce. Um, so when you go through all of those paths, and when you're when you're trying to do that, and you're hitting a wall each and every time, you're going to break down. And when you break down enough, and when you bang your head against the wall enough, you're gonna you're gonna knock yourself out. And it and it's not surprising. I mean, when you look at in, in another light that our overall condition now, there is so much more of a recognition of suicidal thoughts and there's so many more avenues available, you know, between crisis lines, 
uh, between online supports like Seven Cups, when you look at the conversation and how it's grown and people who are now admitting that, yes, I have had suicidal thoughts, that the number is where it is. I wouldn't surprise me that it's at, that in reality, it's a little bit higher than that. So it's, um, you know, I'm very happy to have found the number because I think that the, the number, the one thing that, that needs to be done more than anything is that these statistics need to be openly discussed and either ha- and it's got the only way that we're going to get to the place where uh where infertility is taken more seriously and where the after effects are addressed to the point that governments will start to sit up and take notice and see that this isn't something that is an elective surgery that this isn't uh something that you take lightly but that governments need to support through their various health programs um that the overriding impacts and that you're you have people that are contemplating, attempting, and committing suicide as a result of it, it's something that really has to be addressed better. Yeah, I I agree. So when you're talking about you finding a better place mentally, going, you know, looking to friends, looking to counseling, where did that fall in your journey? Did you start to feel better before you found success with your family or did it really have to really come afterwards? Um, I started to feel better once I started to talk and, and really like that's, that's the only way that I can put it, you know, I I mean, at the, at the root of every conversation is a, is that need to be able to express yourself. And that's the hardest thing. And I think for men it's a lot harder than women, just because of a lot of the stereotypes that exist about men that we, that you, that you just brush it off or you, you bury it deep inside. As soon as I started talking about it, and it, honestly, that first conversation with my wife about how I was feeling was a relief. When I started to, when we started to get on the path and when I was able to express how I was feeling about different things, you know, it, it helped. When I was able to go into the support group, it helped. When I, as odd as it sounds, going on my first radio show and going on my first television broadcast to to do to have those conversations, felt good because I was speaking out to, I mean, most people didn't know who I was from a hole in the wall, but they, but at the same time I was freeing and I find actually, and I think a lot of people feel the same way that it's easier to talk to strangers than it is to talk to close ones, to loved ones. So being able to have that spot where I was just talking one-on-one with a, with a journalist or with a, a host that knew me only a little bit, and just having a private conversation that, you know, just having to be broadcast public was actually very freeing for me. And the more that I that I discussed it, even in doing my TED talk, it was so rewarding to be able to do that because when you're ta- when you're just speaking out, you've got the you've got that microphone in front of you. There's got you've got nobody that's going to interrupt you or start to dig in with other questions. You're allowed to freeform and get all those emotions out, and it just was so it felt so good. Well, one of your emotional support elements you talked about that I was really, I enjoyed reading about was when you guys got a dog. And I feel like a lot of listeners will probably <laughs> resonate with that, which I thought was so sweet to talk about yeah. um, rescuing this this dog who'd been through a lot and how, you know, you guys helped it, but it was supporting you as well. Mm-hmm. And I, and it's funny, like he, he's now 13 years old. He's sitting beside me yawning, waiting oh. for me to get off the uh, the phone so that I can feed him. but. He is, he, he's honestly, I, 
I don't want to say that there's one breed that's better than than others, but a mini Dachshund for us at least was the way to go because he's, I mean, he weighs about as, as he, well, actually about twice the size of a baby when they're born, but he is, you know, a lot of ways he's like an infant or a toddler that we have to uh, clean up after him. We have to carry him around places because he doesn't like to, to jump up on things. Um, but we, and so it got, it had that healing element, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's the very basic of that you have this being that's dependent on you, that, that is counted on you for nurturing. And, you know, even those small little things like teaching them how to sit and teaching them, you know, like how to do tricks and things like that. It's, it's in the same, same ways, it's, it's as frustrating as it is to be a parent. Um, so you get, you get that rewarding feeling as well. Um, you know, the, probably the most rewarding feeling for me was, uh, he and I, did our uh, local one of our local pet shelters does a, a 5k walk uh, every year for uh, to raise money for their for their purposes and he and I went out and did it I thought for sure I was gonna have to carry him through half of it but he he ran it he Aww. yeah she loved it so yeah. it was a it was a the very the proud papa moment for sure yeah I love it oh um, back to to your journey I mean, yeah. you certainly went through a lot where you, you know, had the miscarriage early on, you go through lots of testing, then you start traveling for IVF. Do you want yeah. to tell us about that experience? Yeah. So after doing a couple of procedures here, we ended up going online to see where would be the best place for us to go because the, 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 the fertility facility in Winnipeg, the only for Toady facility here uh, sort of gave us that option of we're at um, we're, we can do whatever we feel is right next after doing IUI. And we didn't feel that there was much helpful there because we, we when you're when you're a patient, you're looking for guidance. You're looking for that pro, that side of at the very least. You know, we could do IVF, we could do IUI, but here's what we would recommend. Um so we just decided to start looking online at options. We found uh, a clinic in Victoria, BC that had been highly recommended, um, both in terms of their overall reviews, but also in Winnipeg, there were a number of families as we found out that had already gone out there. Uh, so we decided that, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. So we packed up. For those of us familiar with uh, Canadian geography, how far are we <laughs> You're talking a 24 hour drive. So you're, yeah. So this was like, we're like Winnipeg is dead center of the country and Victoria is out on one of the islands on the West coast near Vancouver. So this is, this was going to be a few days journey there and back. Um, we, there's a couple of fun, uh, fun stories from along the travel route, but ultimately, I mean, we're, you're packing up, we're packing up our car as full as we could literally to the point where we could maybe see out of a little sliver of the, of the rear, the rear window. And, you know, we, we, so we, and we did this because we were going to be there for a month. You know, the, we, we started the drug protocol. We figured, you know what, we might as well be there. We're going to, we're having to rent an Airbnb uh, for a full month. So we might as well do the, uh, the full time there. We did our, my wife actually did her first, uh, run of drug injections as we were waiting to get on the ferry to go across from the mainland to the <laughs> island where Victoria was. We definitely hear a lot of podcast, a lot of our guests tell about different places of having to do. I was going to say, it actually did what, on the ferry. ferry yeah. Yet. Yeah. 
yeah so that so yeah so so thankfully we didn't do it on the ferry we did it right before but it was still like it's and of course it's pouring rain and we're like panicked because we got to make sure that we get on the on the ferry so that we can get it to our place and it, before the last one goes out at night so it was it was crazy there's no other way to describe it but we ended up making it onto the boat we ended up being calmer after and all that kind of stuff Settled in probably, I think, around 11.30 or so at night and breathe a sigh of relief to actually be out there. But, it, but yeah, the journey between the driving, between the, the planning and everything else along the way, it was one of the most harrowing experiences that I have ever been through in my life. Uh-huh. And so one trip it took, that's the end of story? Um. <laughs> In a, in a sense it was, I mean, we, and I, and I say that, you know, that we consider ourselves lucky that we didn't have to go through some of the processes that others have gone through. Um, you know, I've, I've heard stories of people going through six or seven IVFs just to have one baby. And we, we were fortunate on the first round to go to, to have success. Um, we ended up uh, going back to Victoria a couple of years ago to try for a second round and see what happened. Um, and we unfortunately had a, pre- had a miscarriage in that second pregnancy. Um, but I look at my daughter every day and I'm thankful that, that it came, that, that she is the one that, that made it through. Yeah. I often hear that kind of the weight maybe is like, this is the time, this is the person that was supposed to be born. This is my child. Absolutely. So another really interesting part I found, I mean, I thought your book was so informative and funny and interesting. Um, Thank you. One of the explorations I thought was, was really interesting was especially about talking about support and then many people look to their religions mm-hmm. how those, those um, principles and those people they had turned to previous in their life deal and look to fertility and I thought it was really interesting, your kind of examination, and so many religions are very critical of fertility mm-hmm. IVF. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found in this research? Yeah, the a lot of the sort of quote-unquote Western religions, um, Christianity, Judaism, um, and I should uh, preface it by saying traditional uh, Christianity and traditional Judaism sects um, are very tepid and very... Uh, if not outright denial of of infertility treatments, so it it's it 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 astounded me in a way because uh, I mean when you when you look at the Judeo Christian Bible, the one of the Ten Commandments or one not one of the Ten Commandments, but one of the points made is to be fruitful and multiply. So if you need a little bit of assistance to do it, if you need a little bit of that of technology helping you out, be it pill, be it procedure. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I think that most people would say the same thing. And yet there is this belief that if it's not natural, it's not meant to be, or that you're meant to go on a different path. And by no means would I say that, you know, adoption or other options are not the right path. But I think for a lot of people, they will say that adoption is the second option that, that they will take. They would rather have their child one way or another. So when you go into a into a priest's office or a rabbi's office, you want to be able to feel that you are being listened to and that your concerns are, are, be, are going to be addressed. 
But in the very religious sects, there is a lot of belief that no, that this is not the right way to do something. And it's, I'm glad that there are, that there is an opening up about it, you know, in the same way that, um, that the representation of women, for example, in Orthodox Judaism is changing and that there, and that there's a lot more discussion about, about that the traditional ways aren't necessarily the ways that have to stay, um, that a lot of, of outlets are accepting more of, okay, there, it's okay to have, to have those assists, et cetera. Um, yeah. It's definitely good to hear there's some evolution, but it's also interesting for other religions that may not be as popular here. We're more accepting, right? Yeah. And it, and it is, and there, and, you know, and, and it's, it's not, I, I talk about the the religions that I do not to single anybody out or anything like that. Um, It's more that these, that this was the research that I was able to find that was available. And, uh, and I don't doubt that there are some religions that are more open to infertility. There's some religions that are less open to infertility, but I just wanted to get a, to get a cross section of what are the, what are the beliefs from a lot of the, uh, as many different areas as I could. And thankfully the re- the research has been done um, as it has been done for many aspects of religion um, and how people manage through various issues in their lives. Right. So it was, it was very, it, it's, and it, it was eye opening to me, t- to me as well. Uh, but I think that it's a conversation that needs to be had because, you know, as you said, a lot of people will go to their priest, their rabbi, their other religious leader um, as an, as a source of what is the next direction or how should I continue on my path? Well, unrelated to this, I did want to get um, the real story. There's a couple times you allude to something happening to you in the testing process, I wanted to find out what happened. (laughs) My understanding is that you're having to provide a sample of your genetic material and the lights went out. Yeah. What happened there? Well, uh, and and for for any women who haven't been into the little room that guys go into, I suggest you do because until you're in the room, you will not understand how traumatic (laughs) these places are. Um, I went, the, the room, this was in, was at our clinic in Winnipeg, and I had to produce my sample. Um, and and sure enough, you know, like the like you go into the room, and it looks like it's something straight out of the seventies. There are magazines on the table. There are there is a uh, did it, did it have the typical like Nagahide recliner? The you know. <laughs> I swear, I swear, they went down. They went down to Sally Ann, and they picked out whatever they could find because yeah. it. Like I'm, I'm sorry, but and I'm no, I'm no cleaning expert. But a vinyl chair to sit on and have oh. multiple males sit on, mm. most often not wearing much, right? Is some you <laughs> is not the best thing to do. You want to, ha- especially in this po- in this COVID era. And I can't say that enough though, because I think it's actually going to get things to change. But I think, but you want to have a surface that is easiest to clean, not something that's going to absorb a lot of things, not something that where the where the lights are going to be suspect as they were. When I, when I went in, so I, I, so literally what it was is I went into the room. I thank God that the internet is something where you can find those materials without having to touch <laughs> magazines that have been there for probably for who knows how many, how many fingers to go through. And I, so I, you know, you just, you're sort of in this, let alone the performance anxiety that you have because everything is dependent on you doing what you do Right. Otherwise, for ten minutes, and all this, and 
you just got to get it done. So the lights will start to flicker in the room. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I, I just don't have time to deal with this right now. So sure enough, at the worst possible moment, lights go out. Oh, no. And I'm thankful that I was aiming as good as I could, not completely <laughs> aimlessly, as it were. <laughs> and, I, I, and it was honestly the most humiliating mo- moment of my life. And I've had some humiliating moments. But, oh, the, no. but to go outside – Try, after trying to fumbling around to finally get the lights back on to get my to get the myself cleaned up as best I could to go and tell a nurse that hey there's something wrong in your room here <laughs> and to ha- to bring her back into the room and show her that hey your light's not working properly that's not that was one of the most awkward oh conversations I have it ever had like a motion sensor that it didn't sense you or who knows no 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 oh please motion sensors were is a technology way too advanced for this room <laughs> this was seriously I give it was I, I'm pretty sure it was fluorescent I'm sure that there was asbestos somewhere in the ceiling like it, it really looked like the like you're going into a time capsule from the 1970s right down to the magazines that, and you're, you're really are not, it's, it's in this backwards era that all of a sudden, you know, you're transported into this world straight out of WandaVision. That is, that is, no, there's no other way to describe it. That, that you all, and all you, the only quote unquote technology that's there is a two way cabinet that you can open from either side for it to, to pass the, the little cut back and forth. You know somebody is basically standing on the other side waiting for you to do so too. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's I mean, at, 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 let's let's face it. At best of times, when when male or female, when you're when you have to go into the into the doctor's office and they ask you to give you a urine sample, you're thinking to yourself, "Have I had enough water? Have I if I right. run the tap, is it going to make me right. make it actually go better?" And all that kind of thing. That kind of performance anxiety multiply that by about a thousand. And that's what you what you're going through in that room because you know that there's at some point the nurse is going to bang on the door. Is everything okay, sir? <laughs> She's going to say, "Is there anything I can do to help?" And of course, you can't. No. So, <laughs> so you're 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 literally caught with your pants down. Nothing else you can do but try to get through it. Oh wow! Oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, we really appreciate that you've written this book and put your story out there, as well as all this research and information, as well as making it funny and accessible. So you so kindly sent us a copy, but what is the what's the release date? When do we get to celebrate this coming out to everyone? Uh, the release date in North America is March 30th, and it's going to be available through all the major chains that's on Amazon for pre-order now. And I'm sure that Barnes and Noble um, and all the other major chains have it available. Uh, the one thing I will say is this, is that we're in it obviously in a very different time than when I first even conceived of the book and was able to, to get the contract. It's, it, we're now in a time where there are so many bookstores that are in trouble. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend anybody who wants to pick up the book Please investigate your local bookstore first. If you don't have a local bookstore, I have a local bookstore, McNallyRobinson.ca. Go to them. I they have been so good to me in the past, and I want to make sure that that they're supported as well, as well as the bookstores across the U.S. and Canada. Um, I love your plea to make small help small yeah. businesses. That's awesome. Thank you. Suggestion. I will admit that I first went to Audio to look for an audio version of. <laughs> 
so much easier right these days. And yeah. I and then you will have an audio version of the book coming out as well. There is there is an audio version as well. So anybody who wants to uh, to 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 stream it while they're on their own uh, journey across the country or whatever you're doing, um, you know, certainly that that is going to be an option available. But um, but I'm you know I. I, w- I would definitely encourage you to, to support your local bookstore and find it because it will be out there. Um, it's going hardcover first. I, I don't know when the softcover version is going to be available, uh, but they, but it's going to be accessible by all means. And if you, and if your preference preferences to, uh, to e-read, it, is it going to be available for all the major apps as well? Uh, so it is, it's, um, it's something that I, I mean, hey, I, I can say it because I'm the writer. Um, it's something that I, that I spent a lot of time on. And to to touch on on that on what you mentioned briefly, there is a comedic approach to it. And this is something that I learned very early on. Um, I was blessed in my writing um, and in my upbringing to listen to study under names well, that Canadians at least will recognize, like Stuart McLean, but also um, using you know Morgan Spurlock as an inspiration to that the best way to communicate something is to have a little bit of that uh, that comedic approach to have a little bit of that softer element to it but also that when you're dealing with the topic as serious as this is that is that you, is that there has to be that feeling of keeping your your sense of humor intact and so many people that I spoke to said the same thing that if without our sense of humor and if we weren't able to uh, speak uncensored and speak you know and just laugh about everything we wouldn't be where we are and i know i wouldn't be where i am with if i hadn't had that coping mechanism with me um and i and that's so that's how i bring it out um that you know there is this uh, this way to speak and there is this way to communicate and to get the the major points across but you have to have that a bit of that relaxed approach to it definitely and we appreciate that that balance i think your readers will as well thank you thank you john for joining us and um Listeners, take a, you know, be on the lookout for swimming aimlessly. Thank you, John Waldman, for sharing your perspective and for writing this great and entertaining book. I think it's a, it'll be a great resource for so many. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I know it's Women's Month, but, you know, <laughs> men, men in the infertility sphere do not as much get their due and get talked about. So... Huge thank you to you for being here for us. And of course, thank you, as always, to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, to Chris at Work at Bird Studio, everyone who makes us sound good, who makes us feel good. Those of you who leave reviews for us on iTunes, those make us yes, feel good. We appreciate those. We do appreciate those and we appreciate you. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. 